Good morning. We got to do better on good mornings. Sometimes I say good morning and it feels like everybody is mad at me. It's just like, good morning. Good morning. Um, my name's Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for working with us and figuring out the parking lot situation. The uh, leaf happens twice a year, so this is one of the two. We're halfway done. Um, I uh, This will come back into play in, in a minute, but um, I have to, to brag about my wife uh, for a minute. My, my wife um, decided if, several months ago that she was going to train for a marathon, and um, she did. Uh, and my wife is just like that. She just decides to do something, and then she does it uh, because she's a machine. And um, yesterday, she, she uh, ran, runs this marathon, and we're waiting near the end. It's a trail marathon, so we're at the kind of top of this little grassy hill. And uh, my wife is the second woman to finish, uh, the, the sixth person to finish. And uh, she just comes, just doesn't even look up to like wave and people are clapping for her. She just head down, just plowing through to the finish line. She finishes um, and, you know, I give her a big hug and tell her I was proud of her. And, and the first thing she says to me was like, I think I missed a turn. That was too easy. And I was just like, who are you? <laughs> what kind of being are you? And... Uh, I asked the, I was like, you want me to go ask? Like if they tracked your chip or whatever? And, and she said, yes, go ask. And I asked and it was, turns out it's a 40K, which is just slightly less than a marathon. And that like apparently the calculations of her body that her cyborg brain had like calculated, she knew it was only slightly off from a marathon, but that was it. She just... She came in second overall for, for women and sixth, and, and I don't know why she's married to me, but um, she, I'm incredibly proud of her, and she's not here right now. I don't, I don't even get any points for this at all. Um, she's helping her family get off and go back to Michigan right now, but when you see her, you should ask for tips on how to be a better human because she can help you with that. Um, what I saw my wife do over the past several months, you know, waking up at four or five in the morning to get training runs done, that this bears on and illustrates what Jesus is going to talk about in these two very short parables that we'll close our series on the parables with. Um, because the characters in these little tiny stories make similar decisions. And they're the kinds of decisions that we are invited to make all the time. So we're in Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Three verses, two stories. That last verse that's on there. Oh, no, that's right. I thought I'd put an extra verse on there. Okay, good. I did put an extra verse on there. Don't read the last line. That's into the next story. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. 
Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you came as a herald of the kingdom, that you come to communicate to us what we could not have discovered for ourselves. And we pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit, you would do it again for your people now, in this time and place. God, help us to see correctly the state of things. And help us, God, to live lives that reflect the greatness of what we have found in you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Uh, my intention over these past um, six, six weeks, including this week, uh, was to look at these parables of Jesus, these stories that he tells that, that drop like seeds in our hearts and, and sort of unpack as you meditate on them over time, is, is to do exactly what he's inviting us to do when he tells us these stories, which is to reflect on the nature of the kingdom of Jesus you know, this is, the, this is what Jesus came to do, was to tell, to inaugurate, to lead the advance of the kingdom of God in the world. And oftentimes we, we can skip past a lot of these teachings about the kingdom because we just want to get to the part where Jesus dies on the cross. And uh, obviously that's the central pivot point of the gospel as Christians, but Jesus spent a lot of time not dying on the cross. He spent a lot of time in the gospels telling people for years and years, this is what I have for you. This is what I've inaugurated for you. This is what I've won for you. And the cross only serves to open, open us up into that world that he's spent this time describing and and living for us. And so the, the parables that we've seen have been Jesus telling these stories to slowly reveal to us the nature of who God is and what He's doing in the world, how He's starting with small and humble things, and that small and humble thing will grow and grow and fill the world, how God is uh, this Father who is searching for the lost, how God um, targets the poor, both economically poor and then spiritually poor, and the kingdom is for people like that. He is the one who clothes his guests so that we accept the party on his terms. He is this profoundly generous, um, party-hearted person that says to come into the party, you must come on his terms. But the, the, the calling that is there for us is, is there for us to respond to on his terms. And I wanted to end with this little set of micro-parables uh, because I think for us, this, the question of whether or not we believe these parables, these specific parables, is of central importance for all of our lives. Because the, the stories here, in some sense, can seem nonsensical. I think the temptation is to read these parables and to say the two persons at, in question here um, they, they are being foolish. 
They are selling everything they have to buy these things. And it's, it's possible to read these two little stories and to say, this is like irrational fervor for treasure or, or pearls or something. But the, the people who are presented in these two parables are not presented as people who are fools. They are people who are presented as people who seemingly do foolish things, but act, actually make accurate and wise investments. It's not a mistake that the person who finds the treasure and hurriedly covers it up so that nobody else will steal it goes and sells everything he has. Because what he's doing is buying the field and trading everything that he has and getting something that's worth far more. And the person who's this merchant who's buying a pearl of great price, he's not making a lopsided crazy deal just because he loves shiny things. He is selling things of lesser value that he might buy something of greater value. And these people who go to such extreme lengths are making wise investments. And Jesus is saying the kingdom is like this. The kingdom is like this in that it demands that you make what appears to other people as outside observers as foolish investments but in the real reckoning of things is actually the best kind of investment decision that you can make. And we get caught in this value judgment all the time. This is basically how we live our life. Making value judgments. What, will, what is best for me? What will bring me the most value? What will bring me the most pleasure? And we go through life making these kinds of of decision. So I, I reference my wife, and a big part of training for anything is to say, I will sacrifice, I will give up something that I deeply love and treasure for my wife, sleep. I will give up time when my four children are not crying or demanding my attention or asking me to play incomprehensible games and I will, instead of sleeping and resting, I will get up and go downstairs in the basement and pound out five, seven, eight miles. And from my point of view, that is foolish. That is a terrible decision. Why would you wake up at four in the morning to go run on a treadmill? That's terrible. But my wife has said not what is directly in front of her and said, you know what, I love running on a treadmill. What she's said is, I can see into the future and several months from now, I can see finishing this incredibly long, stupidly long race and being in good shape when I do it. And because I, I love that vision of what's ahead of me, I'll do this thing and do the thing that I hate. You know, I, I have found, um, I found a similar sort of thing in my own life. Um, probably a year, year and four months ago or so, there was a lot more of me up here, here specifically. And uh, that was fueled by my great love for bread. I just love it so deeply and dearly. I did not, uh, you know, it made real sense to me that Jesus 
would go uh, for the words of the law and say, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I got that because that was like, that really does say how special the word of God is because I really could live on bread alone. So the word of God must be really, really powerful. So that really spoke to me. I, I'm a bread eater. I'm a bread destroyer. I'm a bread if that's a thing. That's me. And also, when that happens, you get larger. And that had progressively happened. And so what I figured out that I had to do to be less of me was to time and time again turn down bread. I must repeat, I love bread. I don't know if I've made that clear enough. Every time that it was offered to me, I had to say, no, because I don't want to die when I'm really young. I need to say no. I don't want to end up like family who's found out later in life that they have diabetes. And you know what? I suffered every time I said no. But it, and it, it was not because I had suddenly said, I hate bread, that I was saying no. It was because it finally dawned on me that the future was going to be real, God willing, and I did not want to be giant version of me. I wanted to be the version of me that could run around with my kids and be relatively healthy. And I was saying yes to that. And I was able to say no to that delicious biscuit. These are the kinds of value judgments that we make all the time. And Jesus is saying kingdom life is tied up in these kinds of decisions. You cannot be in the life of the kingdom without constantly being confronted with what do you value ultimately. So my question this morning in light of these parables is very simple for you. What is of ultimate worth to you? You know, this coming to sit in church on Sunday, that cannot be the thing that is of ultimate worth to you. If, if Christianity, if following Jesus gets tied up entirely to coming to church on Sunday morning, and then tomorrow or the next day you want to meet with me and tell me about how hard it is to give up this thing or that thing, I will, I will tell you straight away, your problems start because you have tied following Jesus entirely to this thing that we do on a Sunday morning, and that is not worth enough for you to say no to this or yes to that. This is a great thing that we do on Sunday morning. Don't get me wrong. I love coming to church every week. I, I'm committed to it, obviously, because of my job. But even if it wasn't my job, I would still be committed to doing it because of the power of worshiping together. But you who, it's not your job. You choose to be here most Sundays. If this is what it means to follow Jesus then this parable does not make any sense to you, really and truly experientially. Let me tell you a couple things that I think we, in our culture, tend to value more than anything else. Money and security, those things go hand in hand. 
Now, in our part of the world, we don't have like tons of people driving down the road in Mercedes and living in 14-room quasi-McMansion scenarios. So the odds are that you're able to, on the face of it, say, nah, that's, that's not a problem for me. But let me, let me just stop for a second and say, is money the most valuable thing to you in the Black Mountain, Swannanoa, Asheville version of that? So the Black Mountain, Swannanoa, Asheville version of that is, do I get to buy the nicest coffee that I want all the time? Do I make sure that I can buy the best kind of beer or wine all the time? Is all of my meat, like hand grass-fed, massaged calf chicken lifestyle, premium, organic, non-GMO, all the abbreviations, meat? Do I get to go on the perfect kind of glamping vacations with the perfect kind of Instagram shots and friends, the perfect right amount of friends wearing the correct outdoor gear? Okay, these are the versions of Black Mountain, Swannanoa, Asheville money issues. Because the issue there is not really, do I get to have the biggest and nicest of everything? The question is, do I ultimately love being able to buy the kind of lifestyle that I love more than any other kind of lifestyle? Do I get to secure for myself the ability to live the kind of life that I want. In our culture, here and everywhere in this country, we are primed to believe that this is the most important thing that you can do in your life. Secure for yourself the kind of life that you desire. However that looks, whether you're from where I'm from in Atlanta originally, or you're from here or some other part of the country. And you know, when you arrange your life to make sure that you can constantly answer yes to that question, what you've arranged for yourself is an order and system of worship and given that thing primacy so that it can be God for you. The Bible will call that idolatry. And when the question will come, will I do this kingdom thing or will I make sure I can buy that next piece of Patagonia gear and you constantly choose the latter, then this parable does not make sense. Then the people in these parables are foolish to you. Here's something else that, that we tend to idolize here and everywhere in our culture. If and when you have children, you arrange your life around your children. Now, to some degree, you have to because they're entirely dependent little human beings that need to be fed. And I mean, they literally 
you know, mess on themselves. You have to, like, clean them. You have to feed them. You have to take care of them. But, but we easily receive cultural messages where you have to order your entire life around not just the needs but wants and desires of your children. And in the name of being a good parent, we dream of this idealized future for them. And then must make everything that we have subservient to that theoretical, hypothetical future for these imagined, ideal, perfect, middle-class kids that have the best kind of education, the best kind of club soccer experience, the best yada, 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 yada. Now, taking care of kids is a wonderful, glorious thing. And I'm not sitting here saying, you should want garbage for your kids. You shouldn't care about your children at all. But idolatry is a sneaky thing because it's usually a good thing that becomes God in your life. Idolatry usually happens today not by saying, you know what I'd like to do? Melt down gold and to make an image out of it because that makes tons of sense to me. You're more likely to take something that is good and God-ordained as an avenue of blessing in your life and to stop looking at the one who made that for you and instead make the created thing into the role of creator. And I can tell you as a parent, it is easy, easy to idolize your children. We, we, are, we are more likely in our culture today to idolize our children rather than neglect them. Now, there are exceptions to that. And people in this room could put their hand up and say, I have been neglected. That absolutely happens. But culturally, in general, in this church, we are more likely to idolize our children. Now, there's, I could go down the line here. There are, there are lots and lots and lots of really, really good things that can become in our lives the ultimate thing. But Jesus is saying the kingdom is like the thing of ultimate value for whom, for which you sell everything. Jim Elliott, missionary who was killed famously said, he is no fool who sacrifices what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The nature of the kingdom is a shifting of perspective to view as eternally valuable what will actually last for all of eternity. You cannot keep money and security forever. And you cannot, in a real and experiential way, be somebody's parent forever. What I'm telling you this morning is, you are going to die. 
I know that's why people come to church, to, get, to receive this very shocking news. But you are going to die. Someday you will stop breathing. And the things that you, don't, that you have valued ultimately will reveal themselves and be spoken out of the mouths of those who observe your death. And when that day comes, what will the observers say of your life? Will the observers say that he or she valued the name of Jesus above everything else? Or will they say something like, he was a great guy who loved A, B, and C and did it well. And people loved him and people will miss him. Jesus and the, the people who followed Jesus, they, they understood this. They understood this keenly and clearly. You can see in the lives of the people who, who spent time with Jesus that their, their value system was dramatically altered forever. The early church is marked by people who literally sold everything that they had. They sold everything that they had to take care of each other and to continue to advance the proclamation of Jesus as King to the ends of the earth. And, and today, we can look back on the book of Acts and the stories of the early church and we say, that was a different time. This is kind of an extreme example. But that's nice. Look, I'm not telling you that you have to sell everything that you have. But I'm not telling you that you don't. I don't, I don't know. God didn't, Jesus didn't say to every person that he met in the Gospels like he did to the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and give it away. But Jesus did say it to someone. There's every chance that he might say it to you. You know, Jesus doesn't say to everyone, I want you to literally die for me. But I'm not saying he's not saying it to you. And if Jesus has lost the ability to put his finger on things in your life and to say, would you give this up for me? Then the Jesus that you're following is not Jesus. You're following a religious, neutered version of Jesus. Because the kingdom always costs something. Jesus is not the ornament on the tree of your life that you hang and make your life look prettier. Jesus is not the side piece of furniture that you slide in to make the room complete. Life in the kingdom is organized around Jesus Christ. And he, he is not content to occupy in your life or mine a place where He provides ancillary, tangential side benefits while you do whatever you want. 
Because ultimately what Jesus came to proclaim about the kingdom was, he's the king, not you. I, I really struggle with this. I come to Matthew 13 in these little tiny verses, and I hit them like a speed bump. Because I, I don't know that my life always measures up in such a way that I can read these little parables and say, that makes sense with how I'm living my life right now. I can give you the most mundane version of this. The number of times in a week that I pass over spending time with God in prayer or reading His Word because I want to do things I cannot even remember is embarrassingly high. I have to go to my life transformation group like every time and, and not say, I, I hit it every, every day this week. But two, three, four times this week, I decided that every, literally everything in my day was more valuable than directing my attention to Jesus for 15 minutes. This is the most mundane version of the kind of value judgments I often make. We're not even talking about the way that I throw away money or time or attention on stupid, stupid, worthless things. So when you come up to these parables, and I'm assuming that I'm not entirely of a different kind than you, this seems like an impossibly high burden to bear. And it is. Jesus will continue to tell stories of the parables that narrow the gate entirely. So that if you want to come into the kingdom that Jesus describes, and you read his parables again and again and again, you will find yourself continuing to say, how can anyone get in? No one fits through the door. There is only one person who, who on the merits can enter into the kingdom of God. And He is the one who's telling the parables. Jesus is telling parables over and over and over and over again that make it clear that the life of the kingdom is great and glorious, and if it was on you, you could never, ever get in. You are not good enough to make your way into this kingdom. You, like every other person ever, fails this test a hundred times a day, choosing worthless things instead of more valuable inheritance. But what the Gospels will say is that Jesus sees things rightly when you and I fail to, and He does what we cannot do. That He is the legitimate kingdom resident. He is not just the king of the kingdom. He's the only, only on His merits citizen of the kingdom. 
He's the only one that rightly sees what is valuable in the moment and in the future and makes the right choice a hundred out of a hundred times. And the door is frighteningly, frighteningly small. It is incredibly narrow because you are supposed to be narrowed in and looking only at Jesus. Paul will describe the kind of choice that Jesus makes in his letter to the Philippians. Jesus as the wealthy one empties himself Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The writer of Hebrews will say that Jesus looks forward and for the joy that was set before him endured the open shame of the cross. Jesus is the one that can tell this parable and most appropriately embody and fulfill this parable. He's the one who was himself full of riches with God and purchased with his life something that was the greatest thing that anybody could hope for, which is the magnification, the glory of God. Jesus saw that if he would make himself poor and humbled in the form of a certain a servant on the other side of the suffering and the saying no was the spreading of saying yes to God. So if you sit before these tiny little micro parables and you say, I fail this test time and again, it is for you that Jesus did this thing. It is for you, with you in mind, that Jesus gives up the thing that he could have held on to and purchases for himself a thing of even greater value, the expansion, the magnification of God's great grace and love and mercy. So if you are here this morning and you say, my goodness, I have treated the kingdom of God as a cheap and common thing, The answer then is not just to buckle down and do better and choose better, but to stop and look at the founder of the kingdom, the author and the perfecter of your faith, to gaze at him and to be reminded of what is truly valuable, what is of ultimate worth, what is the cost that has been paid, the thing that has been settled for you on your behalf. When you see that, you see the glory of God unveiled. And it outstrips, it outshines, it has no rival to anything that you can choose in the moment or in the continuing days of your life. There is no security, no life that you can buy, no life that you can Instagram that is better than the life that comes with following Jesus. 
I don't care if you have your dream occupation or the most mundane, worst one that you can imagine. If you are rich or if you are poor, if you are following Jesus and leveraging your life for His kingdom, nothing that you can purchase with the money that you make or the money that is given to you will ever come close to touching the value of what God has made available to you in Himself. And I don't care how wonderful and precious your children are, how beautiful their model future is, how wonderful their education is, and how, how well that makes you feel about life and about yourself. The inheritance, the progeny that you can be given by coming to Jesus in faith outshines even your beautiful, precious little children. Anything that you can put on those scales that you and I often choose, life in the kingdom outweighs it, outshines it, outmeasures it. And that life is on display for you in the image of the crucified king. The parables have not been telling us just be better but has rather been diagnosing for us that Jesus the King has won a way for us that we could not have blazed for ourselves. This morning, my prayer is that, is that two things would happen. One, that you would look at all the things in your life that you have valued more than the kingdom of God. Do some sort of quick mental, emotional inventory. Really think about those things and look at them and see how, how of surpassingly great worth the kingdom of God has, has been for you. How Jesus has won something for you that is far greater. And to stop. Repent. Stop loving those things that will blow away like dust. The other thing that I would pray for you is that when you look at Jesus, your love for Him will be reignited. And He will stop being for us in our lives the ornamental accessory and instead occupy center stage as the thing around which our lives are built around whom we find our meaning, that you will find that this thing is only a small slice of following Jesus. Repentance and love. And that life is forever the life of the people of the kingdom. Forever repenting and forever being fulfilled and overflowing in love. Would you let me pray for you? Lord Jesus, we confess to you that we have seen the pearl of great price, we have found the treasure in the field, and we have oftentimes laid it aside and been distracted by other things. God, we are sorry. Sorry even for the, the good things 
that we have exalted over you. We are so easily distracted. And God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus speaks to us, communicates to us, and gently and persistently reminds us that he is better, he's better, he's better. God, I pray that you would fan the flames of love in our hearts. Some of us, it's already a fire that's going, and for some of us, it's barely warmed coals that need to be reignited. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would fan those little embers into flame, that you would build the bonfire of love in our hearts. And God, for all those who are here who have never had the spark lit in their hearts, God, I pray that you would strike it today, that you would call them to a life of infinite joy and happiness in you. They would find themselves finally drinking from that which we've been thirsting for all our lives. Trust you to do this, Lord Jesus. We thank you. Amen.